Did you ever get a mixtape? It's a pretty great feeling, a collection of songs someone put together just for you. When I was a teenager in the 90s, it was a key part of both friendship and romance. That cassette with the handwritten list of songs, the way even the songs you wouldn't have liked elsewhere turned into something really meaningful. The fact that you've been thought of. So we decided to make you a mixtape. We've played it before, but it's a good one. It's worth listening to more than once. The songs on the tape are actually stories. But still, there's a variety, and it felt good to put them together. There are a few stories about people who do their work out of the limelight, sometimes right behind it. There are some poems. And in keeping with the spirit of romance that a mixtape provides, we also sent out a reporter to determine whether love is real. We're pressing play on the first song soon, but first, a short break. Stick around, my friend. Welcome to Interstates from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. I'm Alex Chambers, and this is the mixtape we made for you. A word about this first song. Natalie Ingalls is in a band, but that doesn't mean she understands what the bass is all about. So she decided to find out. Here's song number one, some about that bass. In a live setting, people could give less of a sh- about bass. This is Dominic Hayab, one of the best bassists I know. Sounds a little pessimistic, no? Well, I get where he's coming from. Up until probably two and a half years ago, I didn't really understand the bass. It doesn't typically draw a lot of attention to itself, which had me questioning its importance. But every band has one, so it must serve some sort of function. The bass, from what I've learned through conversations with Dom and my friend Phoebe, is an enigma. It's subtle, but compelling. It molds the music, but is invisible. It's ignored when it's there, but missed when it's not. So as I was talking to these bassists, the one question I had in mind was, why? Why the bass? For Dom, the bass was his way to break free from expectations. Dom grew up in a musical household. His parents spent 20 years playing in and around Indianapolis in a successful cover band, most of that happening after his birth. He has an older brother, who took to the guitar pretty quickly, and eventually started playing shows with his parents. Dom, while musically inclined, struggled to connect with an instrument in that same way. He played piano for six years, starting at six years old, and told me a funny story of how he unceremoniously ended his piano career after choosing not to learn the songs he needed to memorize for a piano competition. I kind of just threw in the towel, didn't practice at all, half got my songs memorized. My parents thought I had them really memorized. I go to competition, I sat there for about five, actually for about, I'd say like 30 seconds of pure silence. She was not saying anything. And I got up and left, and my parents were like, that was fast, and I was like, mm-hmm, yep. Dom picked up the trombone in middle school and played in the jazz band, but turned to theater as a form of expression. I adopted theater as my thing. Theater was my space for myself. Um, I did, I loved acting. I was musical theater, but I actually really loved like the play, acting a lot more. I was in band, I was in choir in high school. Those were, I just invested my time in that. And it didn't feel like school, even though it was actually in school, ironically. Like, I hated piano because it felt like school, and now I'm doing music in school, and it felt even more free for some reason. Dobbs told me before that for a while, he felt like the black sheep of his family. My parents always tried to get me to go up on stage, but it was a combination of, I think, anxieties, feeling like I wasn't good enough, all, you know, those things that... I don't, maybe, maybe kids don't typically experience those things that young, but I, I was music, like when it comes to mu- that sort of music and sort of our, our dynamic as a music family. And that was my relationship with music for a long time. Um, it really, it was more, I, I was an observer. I'd go, I'd watch, I'd listen. When I was really young, I'd fall asleep because I was a kid and, you know, I'd prefer, I was a kid that I'd, you know, my parents were having a show and I'd go make a slingshot out of sticks in the trees behind the stage like you know I was just that kind of person um disengaged and when I chose to be engaged I'd really like take in the music and understand and really it's that's the way that informed my understanding of music as an observer more than anything which has actually paid off a lot now 
It wasn't until he started playing the bass, which he picked up his junior year of high school, more seriously that he felt like he'd finally found his thing. When I finally discovered that I could have what my brother had at such a young age with guitar, where it's just kind of his, and it was an extension of himself, and it was just for him and his exploration and his expression, I was like, oh, bass guitar can be that for me. And I kind of chased that, and I met people who were gonna, who allowed me to sort of do that, and it wasn't piano, and it just, the stars aligned in a way that I felt comfortable for the first time stepping into a band environment. And because of my entire past experience as, you know, growing up, I was really prepared for it. Okay, that makes sense. Dom felt like himself in playing the bass in a way that he didn't with piano or trombone. But why the bass specifically? Why not the xylophone or steel drums or... You are the the, the invisible thread, I think, through the band that connects everything. What is everything? Connects the motion and, and the, the tempo and the, the, the not, even, not even the song, not the rhythm of the song, but like the rhythm of the performance itself, I think bass is really integral to. Because when you're working in a more improvisational environment, when you're doing with solos and you're talking about buildups and you know getting the energy and manipulating and pull, pushing and pulling sort of the band itself, I think that's the role of at least me as a bassist in the band. You get a bass line, that's the chords. And then you can do things like do slow walk-ups, do lead-ins, do descending lines that cue next sections. And if you get a band that is cued into that, it becomes intuitive, it becomes a lot more creative and actually opens up a lot more in terms of what we can do on stage together because all of a sudden they're not relying on me to go one, two, three, four to the next section. I can, there are, there are moments where like, very simply, but like we'll be doing solos and stuff like Valerie now, where like I'll be playing the line and then I'll cue the next section by descending and they hear it and then the drums match up and then everyone flows into it. And it's all in layers, like I control the band and the band expression controls the crowd. And if we can get the crowd, you know, if we can really grip the crowd, then that makes the experience and the performance itself on the slower level. It's a lot. Sorry, I, I, I go on so much. Listening to Dom, you can tell just how important the bass is to him. But he's just one person. Does every bassist feel this way about the bass? Meet Phoebe Spratt. I've known her for two and a half years, but the first time I saw her play the bass was two months ago. She learned to play the bass at our local school of rock, which she was a part of from sixth grade to her sophomore year of high school. She put it down when she got to college, until she and her longtime friend decided to start a band this past summer before their senior year. Phoebe's a great bassist, but is pretty new to playing in a band. I wonder how she feels the bass contributes to a live setting. You feel the music a bit more with the bass. Sometimes guitar alone is kind of ugly. You don't feel it and I think the bass that's when you start to feel the underlying beat to where you can like really then appreciate the guitars and that has happened when I like accidentally stop playing or like I'm pretending to play and people are like oh my gosh what's what's wrong like why does it sound bad and then I'll play the next time and the the band members are like oh my gosh it sounded so much better why oh my gosh yeah what why is that I sat in on one of Phoebe's band rehearsals, and it's true. The songs felt incomplete if she wasn't playing. Another thing I noticed was that the other band members often improvised on songs, or at least that's what it looked like to me anyways. But Phoebe never did, and so I asked her why. I used to know the fretboard a lot better, um, so that might be something I should work on, but when they'll be like, yeah, that goes into like A minor, I'm like, okay. Phoebe never did jazz band, but if you remember from earlier, Dom did. And he's really good at improvising. And while that's a cool skill to have, I don't think Phoebe not being able to improvise takes away from her musicianship. Something that struck me when talking to Phoebe is just how stoked she is to be playing music with friends. And to me, it seems like, for her, it's less about the bass itself, and more about what can happen when you decide to start playing an instrument with other people. Which makes the bass the perfect instrument for her. As much as every band needs a bassist, 
every basis needs a band. And the common thread through both Dom and Phoebe's stories is once they found that band, then they really fell in love with the bass. And if you don't believe me, listen to their advice for other bass players. Just go for it, especially in Bloomington. There's so many people that want to play. I think just, just enjoy the experience of performing with the people that you love and care about and put on a good show. Natalie Ingalls. Natalie is president of WIUX, student radio at IU Bloomington, and her single, Undergrowth, just dropped. You can find it under Prairie Scout on streaming services everywhere. And I definitely recommend checking it out. It's really good. The next song on our mixtape is by Jack Lindner. Jack went behind the scenes at a theater rehearsal, or maybe in front of the scenes. But before I play you Jack's song, I have a poem by Tonya Matthew. The poem is Concert Hall, and then we'll play Jack's song, Blinded by the Lighting. Concert Hall. I sit in the hall. The pianist has not yet played, the audience not yet applauded. There's a stillness, even as the hall fills up. Spotlights shine on the stage of polished wood, the piano and the piano stool. Dimmed lights set in the high ceiling and side balconies shine on the audience. The white paint gleams, the lights are clear, the carpet and plush seats immaculate. Behind and above the stage, the organ, silver-plumed bird, presides, silent wings folded. Like banners, lengths of red velvet hang, rippled beside high windows. Everything pristine in this hushed place, the lights create, hold. The pianist plays, we listen, applaud, are in awe. The program is over, but she returns to renewed clapping. Then it is ended. Later, quiet fills the hall, the deserted building. Then they arrive, the setters of the scene, the backstage artists to walk the rooms and concert halls. Bring them forth that in the muted light they with their instruments of clean, may take a bow to a silent and standing ovation. When you think of going to the theater, you probably think of your favorite characters brought to life by the actors on stage. Like Adina Menzel as Elphaba, the Wicked Witch of the West, Lin-Manuel Miranda as Alexander Hamilton, or Ben Platt as Evan Hansen, to name a few. But it takes a lot more than just the actors to bring a production to life. Today, I want to shine a light onto those who deserve just as much credit for a production success as those on stage. And who better to shine that light onto than someone who works with them for a living? Jen? Folk? I talked to Jen last October when they were working on a production of The Importance of Being Earnest with Constellation Stage and Screen right here in Bloomington, Indiana. Jen is a freelance lighting designer who travels across the country going from job to job and working on one production after another. One month they'll be in southern Indiana, then the next they'll be in Boulder, Colorado, preparing for their next production. The primary goal is to work with the director, the set designer, the sound designer, the costume designer, and to help create the visual world on stage. I help create mood, atmosphere, time of day, help with transitions, um, really guiding the audience in like where to look, too. The way that I view lighting design is, you know, transformation of space over time. So lighting is rarely, you know, it's always changing and morphing and it's rarely ever always extremely static. But at its essence, it allows people to see and it also reveals the, the world of the play. Much like the actors putting together a character, the process of putting together the lighting for a show requires long hours of collaboration and creative decision making. There's also um, different qualities of light, you know, where the light is coming from, what angle, what color, 
Um, you can also put um, patterns into different lights. Um, shadows are also a big part of lighting design. You know, choosing what not to light is also as important as what to light. It's interesting because like a set designer can show like a set design, a costume designer can show what they're wearing and then sound designers can play things and compose things. Um, but lighting designers can't really show anything. Like we can show visual research, but we really don't know how it's going to look or feel until we're really in the room. The process of putting together lighting cues also includes asking questions that many probably never even considered asking. The question that I always pose to directors is, you know, sunlight, you know, what color is sunlight? It's very different for everybody and where you are in the world and also the world of the play. You know, sunlight can mean many different things. When I asked Jen if they had any advice for aspiring lighting designers, I expected their answers to be something along the lines of never give up, keep going, the more you work, the better you get, etc. Instead, their answers revealed a new side to them that I hadn't seen during our interview, and it really showed how determined they are in their career aspirations. This is like a common thing, but I think it still holds true. If there's any inclination in your bones that, or your heart or soul that you want to do something else, go do that. Because <laughs> it's so hard. You know, I work full-time as a freelance lighting designer, and there's certainly ups and downs. But there, there, there are times, I think maybe like once a year, is like maybe I'll like go be a vet or like maybe I'll like try to go work at National Geographic. Um, but then I like wake up the next day and I'm like, no, this is like what I want to be doing. And I, I'm good at what I do. And uh, I'm meeting people and it's been the best experience of my life. But if there's any inclination that you're just, if you're on the fence at all, go do that. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like bad advice, but it's, I mean, truly, like, it is a really hard job. While determination is a key to success in the industry, Jen also said that it's important to remember that life does not revolve around the theater. Find things that are not theater that interest you. I love to travel and I love museums and contemporary art. And, you know, I also am starting to get into like more hiking because I go to Maine every year. Love to swim and love to play golf. So find, finding things to do outside of the theater, I think, is extremely important because it all feeds your sensibilities as a lighting designer. I mean, I get to travel and make lighting design and make art with people and then give it to the community. I love that I can sit there with my fellow um, colleagues and we can give this artwork to the, the community. And I, I just, I love doing that. Jack Lindner. Jack is a senior journalism student at the IU Media School, and he works as the podcast manager for IU Student Television. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, there's something different about the way people talk at night. Stay with us. Interstates, Alex Chambers, Mixtape. Okay, the next song I want to play for you is about the people who take care of things when most people are asleep. But first, I have another poem, because ghosts come out at night, too. This is Notes on a Ghost by Erica Anderson Center, followed by Helen Rummel's song, Workin' at Night's All Right. Notes on being a ghost. So the first thing is we are dead. Each moon collapses in our vacant chests from here on out. We cannot start fires even though we want there will be resounding clear pings of movement where you'll be between the blood in his neck, but blood is stranger to us now. Now? Now exists similar to sine, cosine, the rise and slope of the earth's fat thigh. Concepts that are kindling for trash can fires and broken down barns and maggots in the eyes of our mothers. We will rarely remember the good Moonwash of a lover's sin at midnight. Dust falling lightly through the sun in your best friend's window. Small weight of a warbler. The collective noun for trout. Walking a dog with old bones and blood that runs winter rivers slow. As a ghost, you become obsessed with blood. And ain't that just the way? As soon as you can't have it and all of that. Anyway, these words are nothing but ash. And now so are you. Yes, even under this moon, this one right here, the one collapsing inside of us.
Good morning. It's currently 12.51 a.m. And I am on my front porch with a cup of tea. Essentially, just getting warmed up um, and prepared to go out because today we're going to be taking a look at the night shift. I'm trying to be a little bit soft-spoken, partially for audio quality and mostly because people are probably sleeping. When I came to college, I actually uh, took a job on at um, a library, uh, mostly just because, again, I like the idea of it as opposed to what the job actually looks like. And um, my boss approached me and asked if I would be okay with closing the library up because apparently no one was interested in these, these kinds of jobs because it was so inconvenient. It's really quiet. I have a moment to myself and just sit for a bit. Um, I'm able to talk to people, I feel like, in ways that they wouldn't talk to me when it's noon on a Tuesday. Um, and I don't know why that is, but I feel like people have a lot of vulnerable moments at night. Sometimes people are alone at night and they wish they weren't. Okay, um, so my first question for you is if you could just introduce... Undoubtedly, the first thing anyone notices when they walk into baked cookies for the first time is that warm, inviting scent of a batch of cookies pulled straight from the oven. The space is open and surprisingly bright, especially after you walk in from the dark after-hours streets of Bloomington. Cardboard cookie boxes are taped up onto the walls with elaborate artwork on them. By now, it's past 1 a.m., there's not a single customer left, and Desiree Carter is sweeping the lobby floor. So I'm a townie. I grew up in Bloomington. I went to IU and everything. So I used to like come to Baked all the time as like a high school student. Desiree Carter, 23 years old, closes up shop here two to three times a week. She says she's never really minded the hours. In fact, they're kind of a plus. I've always kind of been a night owl, so like the later shifts never really bothered me that much. I usually work, I like close maybe two to three nights a week. So, but yeah, I'm not opposed to staying up late. I've, I don't know, I find peace in the nighttime, you know, just not too many people are awake and it's just kind of peaceful at night. So. Let's see. Last Halloween, there was one person who had an alcohol bottle and dropped it on the floor. Um, so yeah, that was a fun thing that I had to clean up. <laughs> this is when I told Desiree about my theory, my working theory, that people kind of open up after a certain time. Like if you force them to stay up past their bedtime, maybe they can understand you. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just feel like anyone who comes in here later at night, I feel like they're more like, you know, sympathetic and everything. And like, yeah, we're open so late. So they kind of like want to be a little bit nicer, you know, since we're here so late at night and, you know, giving them cookies. So they're definitely a lot nicer about that, I feel like. Um, I don't know. We like to have fun, I guess, but like, you know, because we're night owls. So, you know, it's kind of, a fun type of thing that we do, but we still get work done and everything. But I do love everyone that I work with. Place your item in the bagging area. Uh, hello, I am David Michael. I am a shift supervisor. Uh, been here for about nine and a half years now. David has a long history of working graveyard shifts. While he has been with CVS for some time now, he has a storied late night resume. A uh, couple of gas stations, uh, late shift at uh, fast food places. Target it was overnight there for a while. Um, I think that's it. Part of the reason he likes the night, it's more comfortable. Not only does David enjoy the peace and quiet, but he also has an extreme sensitivity to light making it difficult for him to be out on a bright Tuesday afternoon. Eh, wouldn't say I enjoy it. Okay. <laughs> I prefer it over day shift. I'm more comfortable being awake at night and have been for most of my life. Mm -hmm. So you would consider yourself for sure a night owl? Oh yeah. David starts his shifts each day at 11 p.m. He says nights start off pretty normally until 3 a.m. 
conveniently, that's when alcohol sales end. After that, it's a ghost town. Any person in the store is a surprise. For David, he says it's hard to say because he really spends most of his life in the nighttime. But he does agree with Desiree that people are more real at night. Except that's not always in a good way. Everywhere that I've worked that is interacting with customers, at nighttime we've got a lot more people who are just, oh yeah, no, this is who I really am. Mm -hmm. Then we get during the day where it's generally, I'm on my way to work, shut up, go away. <laughs> I wouldn't say there's less judgment. There's fewer people to do the judging. It's a, it's a lot easier to, to be your true self and, and allow who you really are to shine when there's only a few people around to judge that than it is in a big group of people where, oh, fuck, everybody's looking at me. CVS, in my experience, is one of the last true 24-hour businesses in town. And when David was thinking about it, he says he agrees. Okay. Well, back home again. It is 4.25 a.m. Um, so I think we're going to call that a wrap. I think I might get some sleep before the sun comes up. That sounds like a good idea. Okay. So... On that note, have a good night, everyone. Helen Rummel. Helen is a reporter with the Arizona Republic. She covers housing insecurity and homelessness. Meredith Hemphill's dad, Tim, retired recently. That changed their relationship, and she wanted to talk with him about it. Before we listen to the song she made out of that conversation, I'm going to play Steve Henn's poem, The Dad Rules. Then we've got Meredith's song, Dad Moon Rising. The Dad Rules. Because he is paying the mortgage, he is allowed to walk around inside his house in only a t-shirt and boxers. When they reach the height of the handle, his young must be trained to push the lawnmower. Never speak of the era in which he drank beer after beer after beer. Lightning can't strike you while observing the spectacle of a thunderstorm from the front porch if you're next to a dad. Avoid even bringing up the clogged gutters. No, you may not shoot the BB gun at aluminum cans for the BBs are traveling all the way across the yard, hitting the neighbor's house. He wishes you might ask about the book he's reading sitting in a scamper chair in the backyard, but you never do. Fast food cheeseburgers from a place about a mile away if you do a good job cleaning out the car. He refuses to feel ashamed driving the minivan. He quit watching ESPN. The old couple two houses down find him pleasant to speak with. He leaves the outside lights on when the teens aren't home yet. He is always keeping watch. His phone is always right next to him. Now it is recording. Okay, so what are we doing here? My dad's name is Tim. He's 62 years old and lives in the small town of Kernersville, North Carolina. He went to North Carolina State University, just like his two older brothers and me and three of my cousins. Dad studied computer science. It was obvious to Dad that the digital age was imminent. He wanted to go where the jobs were, and it worked. He has spent an entire career in information technology. I mostly remember my dad as a figure sequestered in the home office all day, hunched over his desk and grimly lit by two or three monitors. Or, when I was very little, a man in smart suits who went to a shiny office building. Sometimes I got to visit him as a treat. I was endlessly fascinated by the rows of gray-walled cubicles, like playhouses for grown-ups. But wherever he was, he always seemed to be working, always on the phone, always in front of a screen. Recently, though, things are starting to change. How has it been now, like two months? I retired at the end of August. There's basically, you know, three flavors of the organization. I started with 
one bank it bought some banks and then it was bought by another bank and then that bought bank was being was bought by a bank so the accumulation of all that was 40 years in information technology i still don't really know what your job was (laughs) oh i guess the simplest way to describe it is database design there's two types systems uh, at the bank and and this is common in lots of companies where there the software that runs the bank generates data dad would take that data organize it and run programs to find the important information hiding in all those numbers and then you can run queries and all kinds of analysis without impacting the operational systems so i mean was this like fun for you yeah you know there's lots of things that go on you know at at work in a big corporate environment that aren't necessarily all that much fun but design of databases yeah yeah that was a fun thing has there been anything that's really surprised you about this new phase of life I wouldn't say surprised, but what but gives you some kind of angst about doing this is that for your entire working life, you save money, or at least you should be saving money, and a lot of people don't, I realize, but you save money in a 401k or whatever for the purposes of retirement, because Social Security was only designed to supplement on like 30% of your income or something like that. But for those who are who try to plan ahead for retirement, you save your entire working career for that. And then the switch turns 180 degrees at some point, and it's like, okay, instead of saving money, you are taking money out. <laughs> Money's not coming in. It's going out of your savings. So that's a completely different mindset and it's, it's a completely different way to plan. Because while you're working, it's, am I saving enough for retirement? And then all of a sudden is, have I saved enough for retirement? So that's that's an interesting math problem. I mean, I, I've, I've seen the simulations and, and all that, cause, and that's what they are, simulations, because there's no exact way to know how much you're going to need. But that all seems very inexact, <laughs> especially for someone who's worked in information technology their entire life. You know, some people say that like retirement is the best thing that ever happens to them. And then some people are like, I hate this. I'm bored. I don't think you've had that problem. But do you like generally feel like your mood is any different? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because um, even in the best of jobs and you know not all jobs are the best of jobs there's there's always going to be some sense of anxiety of something that needs to be done and and deadlines and and this type of thing so and it's it's a little bit different when you when you have a job when you just go and show up and do whatever's there and then go home our jobs weren't exactly like that there were certain things that were expected to be done in certain times and that gives a certain amount of anxiety depending upon what the environment's like and the likelihood you actually be able to get those things done and get them done well. So depending upon what's going on, there's there can be that certain sense when you wake up in the morning of, oh, I gotta go to work. <laughs> Whereas now, you know, I wake up and it's like, eh, you know, what do I wanna do today? And that is very freeing. <laughs> It's now that I've gone through this transition. There's lots of folks I've talked to that that say that uh, retirement is not overrated. <laughs> so I have noticed that in the period of time that you haven't been working, I hear a lot more from you than I think I have ever. I mean, the other day, well, actually a couple weeks ago, you called me just to tell you, you me you fell in a pile of leaves. That's never happened before. Well, 
But yeah, it gives you it gives you more time to do to do things, and it's like you know, I mean, you can do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it within you know certain limits of physics. But I mean, <laughs> yes, um, it's like you know, if I want to look at Twitter and send you direct messages, I can do that. If <laughs> if something funny happens in the backyard, you know, then I can text you or, or you know whatever. I mean, I like it. It always sort of felt like I didn't know you all that well. You know, you you were always on the computer, and then the last, like, two months, you're talking to me all the time. Yeah, when when you're... And, and IT is um, highly variable. I mean, when I first went to work in, in IT, it was pretty structured, pretty predictable. But over periods of time, technologies change and expectations change. It got to be not such a great job anymore. <laughs> so even though I worked remotely for the last several years, you, you do kind of get shackled, you know, for eight to ten hours a day to this machine. As you get older, I mean, when you, if you were a young person doing that, it's a little bit different. But as you get older and you're your energy level is not the same as when you're 25. Pretty soon, that you know, eight to ten hours at the machine every day, you know, kind of starts to suck the life out of you. <laughs> so when when you actually get to the point where you've finished your task or you decide you're just going to quit for the day, there's not a whole lot of energy left. So do you have any thoughts for like what you want this part of your life to look like? Well, you know, there's some things that I would like to do because I have time to do them now that I didn't before. Uh, travel some more. I, mean, I didn't, you know, got to do a little bit of that while I was working. Now I would have the time for that. But would have the time to choose when I would want to travel and to where. Uh, easier than I would when I was working and of course there's lots of stuff that I want to do around you know around the house and the yard and things like that that I didn't have time to do before plus you know I like to work outside with landscaping stuff anyway so beyond that no um, I'm just kind of taking it a day at a time and I actually when I told him I was going to retire I started making a list of things. It was like at least a page and a half, page <laughs> and a half of things I wanted to do around the house or the yard or or whatever. And uh, I put a little bit of a dent into it, but it's nowhere near finished. It's probably never going to be finished. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm having fun. Meredith Hemphill. Meredith just wrapped up her own podcast, Reproductive Injustice, which is about the experience of women in the prison system. You can binge the whole series on Spotify. Okay, let's take another break and then talk about love. Welcome back to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. And as we made this mixtape episode, we got thinking about love. So we sent out a reporter to figure out whether love is real. This is going to be the last song on our mixtape. It's by Avi Forrest, and it's called Can You Explain the Love Tonight? J.P. Houston. J.P. Houston. Do you go to IU? I do not go to IU. What are you doing out here? I'm promoting a pickleball tournament. Cool. And there's a big trophy there. Is love real? Yeah, I think love is real. Do you love pickleball? Yeah, I like pickleball. I like pickleball. I don't love pickleball. Uh, this is recording. What's your name? Uh, Blake Wasco. I'm a sophomore. Yes. Why? And I think it's in multiple different forms of sense of like, oh God, that was a big question to ask this time. There's like platonic, romantic, sexual, there's all kinds of different forms of it, but it comes down to the essence of just, I think, caring. I see it as a, in multiple forms because like she's my best friend. Um, I love her, but like what's, obviously. What's your name? Grace. <laughs> but yeah. So, it's, so you love Grace? Yes, I love Grace. I love everyone. I'm Lena Wurken. 
I'm a narrative journalist and an editor at the existential desk at Politiken, a newspaper in Copenhagen. Love is an emotion and I'd say that to me it's very real when I'm with people and especially if I'm with my closest people, my relatives and my children, my partner. Yeah, I would say that love is very real when I'm in the room with love. I would say that the the notion of love is at a distance much more of a fantasy or an imagination and it's much more the concept of love that you have yourself and that you project to others. So I would say love is much more real when you're actually in the room with people than when you're not. What's your name? Kurt Waldman. Uh, yeah, I'm a, a teacher. I'm in the geography department. I guess I guess uh, you know it if you experience it. Have you experienced it? Yeah. When? Uh, with my wife. Do you both love geography? No. <laughs> She doesn't love geography at all, I don't think. <laughs> yeah, it's more it's easier to find people different from you, more interesting. Mm-hmm. Somebody's the same as you, it's kind of boring. Hey, how is she doing? Bean? Hi. <laughs> yeah, dude. <laughs> I can't believe I'm asking this, but is love real? <laughs> she, she loves everybody. Oh. Oh. Hey, sorry, it's just I'm Rex. I'm Scott. Blackwell. Meadows. Um, landscape. Landsca- landscape. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess. I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, I, you either love them or you don't. I mean, probably my other half. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've been with her for 22 years, so yeah. uh, something says something there, so. It'd be love. I've been married 40 years, buddy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. my kids. Hi. Uh, Sorry to interrupt. Am I give a am I interrupting you? What's your name? Darren Collins. I'm a freshman this year. I feel like lots of times people equate love only to like certain people, but like love extends to like a lot of different things. Like I feel like everyone truly loves something. Like I truly love drums. Music is what I do. So it's just like love doesn't have to just be between a man and a woman or a man and a woman or a woman or a woman or whatever you want to identify as. It's like it goes to things you're passionate about. Passion is an ex- direct extension of love. Which one? Sasha Kuznetsov. Uh, is love real? Yes. Why? Um, because I think I've felt it before. Uh, I think I've, I've felt it right now. When I'm with uh, my boyfriend, it just feels really happy and like warm inside. I would get anxious about how I'm gonna get somewhere or like just like regular things people get anxious about and don't even realize like all of that just seems a lot more insignificant and I don't stress as much about like the little things um, I also don't stress as much about the big things like finding a job after college and everything like it just seems like everything's going to like work out even though nothing's really changed it's just the feeling of like love yeah that's fantastic I love that. Uh, also, can I get uh, a small black coffee, please? Yes, of course. Um, Emma Elizabeth Austin. I grew up here, so I'm just visiting home right now. So I'm going to college at the University of Arizona. I think it's it's a byproduct of survival. I feel like surviving in the world, having your needs met, isn't enough to feel human. And I think that love is something that we've created and have become reliant on to feel human and feel connected with the world around us and the people around us. And it's become an important necessity of life is having love. So do you think love is good or bad? Um, I think it has good intentions, but it can be used cruelly depending on who wields the love. So my parents divorced when I was young, and when I had to choose which parent to live with, my dad would use his love um, in a way that was kind of emotionally manipulative. Um, He didn't realize it at the time. He just loved me and wanted me to be with him. And so he'd bribe me with like, oh, I'll get you a dog, I'll buy you a car, you know, just all this stuff 
to try to get me to live with him because of this love. He didn't see it as a negative thing, but definitely I think that love can turn negative because of the desperation that often comes with it and like how much we love and what that can turn into when we can't get that love back. So it's more... Excuse, sorry, excuse me. Yeah. What's your name? Uh, Avi. Okay, my name's Brian. Nice to meet you. Brian Harris. Well, I'm older, but I'm going to school to be an electrician. Have you told anyone you love them? Yes, yes I have. Who? My mother. I love her because she supported me uh, throughout everything that I've ever done. She even, you know, loved and supported me um, when I wasn't the, the Brian that you that you understand in this stature now. The Brian before, very talented skater, just uh, sensitive and 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 quick to react without thinking things through. The honest answer is she helped me through that by kicking me that, sorry, I can't cuss, by kicking me out. She kicked, you know, kicking me out really ha- had me, you know, up against the fence and, and, and let me really come to terms with the things that I needed to do and the things that I didn't need to do in order to survive. And and it was that kind of love right there that I, that I hated in the beginning. She didn't let me grab my stuff, nothing. Just kicked me out cold turkey. I had to start 100% from scratch. But I ended up winning $2,000 about two weeks later. And, I, and, that, and that money right there ended up me getting my first apartment on my own. I won the money on a scratch-off ticket. <laughs> my name's John. Uh, full name? Shoe. Enjoy, Shoe. I'm retired. I'm retired also with family and friends and everything. I've seen it firsthand. Mm-hmm. And our motto of our family is love loudly. Be loud about your love. Yes. And that came it's from our, our granddaughter. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it was very literal. She was what, very loud. Name? Caitlin, she passed yes. away on Valentine's oh. Day um, seven years ago. Eight years eight ago. Years already. It'll be eight, eight years this Valentine's Day. And that was the theme of her uh, eulogy and her service. And the pastor said, you knew when Caitlin was around because she loved loudly. Mm-hmm. So that we all say loudly, love loudly. You have to. She was uh, a very outgoing little girl. She died at age of five. So, I mean, she didn't have a very long life, but um, when she was around, you knew it. Just she had an illness, her. and they couldn't determine that mm-hmm. from autopsy. So We, we have don't our, know why God took her, but he did. Yeah. He had a reason. Right. She would go in church, yeah. and... Everybody in church knew she was there because she'd go, Hi, you, hi, ah, ah, ah. She very was loud a voice. very loud voice and a very loving child. She loved everybody. Everybody that knew her loved her. She loved everybody. She was very loud and proud about it. And uh, we want to keep that memory of her alive. That was made by Avi Forrest. Avi is a producer here at WFIU. That's it for our mixtape. I hope you liked it. This is Interstates from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. If you have a story for us or you've got some sound we should hear, let us know at wfiu.org interstates. Okay, I've got one more thing before the credits. Have you been listening for a while? Maybe this is the first time you've heard the show. Either way, we're doing a survey to get to know more about what you like on the show. And if just getting to talk to us isn't enough motivation on its own, we also have a raffle. A few lucky survey takers will get some classic public radio prizes. We'll have a link to the survey on our website. And while you're at it, tell your friends about the survey and the show. We like talking with people. We hope you do too. All right, time for the credits. Interstates is produced and edited by me, Alex Chambers, with support from Violet Barron, Aya Bonbinder, Jillian Blackburn, Mark Chilla, Avi Forrest, Luann Johnson, Sam Schemenauer, Jay Upshaw, Peyton Whaley, and Kate Young. Our executive producer is Eric Bolstridge. Our theme song is by Amy Olsner and Justin Vollmer. We have additional music from the artists at Universal Production Music. 
Special thanks this week to producers Natalie Ingalls, Jack Lindner, Helen Rummel, Meredith Hemphill, and Avi Forrest. Avi also helped produce this episode. The poems you heard came from WFIU's Poets Weave, produced by Luanne Johnson. All right, time for some found sound. Ready, go. guitar class recorded with permission by Avi Forrest. Until next week, I'm Alex Chambers. Thanks for listening.